Stupid. Stand by playback. And now, live. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to a Wednesday on Honestly Provocative Talk Radio. And the Democrats have come up with a sneaky new plan to steal future elections because they know to a fair certainty that all the hogwash that's been shoveled out by Democrats, especially Joe Biden, has not ended up being good for Americans. I'll tell you about the plan in just a moment, but first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you with me, and I'll update you on what's happened in Las Vegas at the UNLV, where there was a shooting, three people are dead. Uh, there is the shooter, who is apparently dead as well, and we'll wait for more details as those become available. But if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, why naysayers we put to the head of the line. You just have to come equipped with a few facts, a little bit of logic, and a willingness to answer a couple of questions and perhaps be proved wrong. That's okay. We love naysayers. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can always vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new one, brand new one every single day. And this one seems like a well-duh. But consider this. Should we cut our losses with California's badly named high-speed rail project, or should the Congress be forking out even more funding now, I don't live in the state of California. I did when I was a little kid. Uh, but I got to tell you something. This is the craziest project that's been going on just for background. They started out with about $9 billion. $9 billion. And you know what? As of today, they have not laid a single mile of track. Not one. So you spend $9 billion. And then what happens? They get $2.5 billion. And another billion, so a total of three and a half billion from the Obama administration about a decade ago. And 85% of the funding of that has been given to the state of California. And now the Biden administration wants to shovel in another three billion dollars. Unbelievable that they spent all this money. They haven't actually laid a single mile of track and they still call it a high speed rail project. Yep, every single train they've got running on those tracks is running at high speed, except they don't have any running on the tracks right now. So should we cut our losses with the California high-speed rail project or just fork out more money and hope for the best? I would say cut our losses. You can find the question at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, brought to you by AMAC. A great group, conservative group, I joined years ago. It's the Association of Mature American Citizens. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you, for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, because Christopher Wray from the FBI has been in front of the Congress, the Congress has a very consequential decision to make, and it is this. At the end of this year, New Year's Eve, the FBI loses its power to spy. Now, the FBI would tell you, well, we're keeping an eye on foreign nationals who might be a threat to America. 
Yes, and they're also keeping an eye on Americans who are not even suspected of committing crimes. So, should we let the FBI keep the power that it has misused? And my answer to that would be, no, take it away. And if they say, but you're going to put America at risk, no, an FBI that spies on American citizens without good reason, an FBI that gets involved in trying to change the outcome of American elections, that's a danger to America. Take the power away from them. 93% of you join me in a no vote on that question. Only 7% of you voted on the other side. Glad to have you with me. And coming up later this hour, the Oxycontin peddling Sackler family has tried to get immunity from civil lawsuits by filing for bankruptcy should the Sacklers and the Purdue senior executives even face jail time. We'll get to that. Will John Kerry, you know he's now the climate czar for Joe Biden, will his push to kill the coal industry end up killing Americans in the winter instead? And should the parents of an 11-year-old girl sue the school who assigned their daughter to sleep in the same bed with a fake girl, a boy who just identifies as a girl on a field trip? And take a moment to cast a vote in our Twitter poll. Uh, let me tell you about this crazy plan, and then I'll get to your phone calls at 866-439-5277. So Representative Ayanna Presley, yep, member of the squad, announces a brand new bill. She calls it the Inclusive Democracy Act. And I swear when they write titles for these bills, they always come up with something that sounds good. Inclusive Democracy well, of course, the word inclusive is your tip-off. It would expand the right to vote in America to convicted criminals and children as young as 16. And here's the way she tries to sell it. Because of Republicans and the Supreme Court stopping at nothing to undermine voting rights, they haven't done any such thing, and exclude black and brown folks from participating in our democracy, uh, they have also not done that. We must be just as relentless in protecting and expanding access to the ballot box for incarcerated citizens. And then she goes full racial card. Jim Crow is not behind us when the former occupant of the White House can lead a violent insurrection and still run for president while nearly five million citizens that have a criminal record can't even cast a ballot. Well, be sure to check the laws in your state. I'm not going to give you the rundown on all 50 states, but in many states in America, you're only forbidden the right to vote when you're sitting in a prison. Some states will say to felons, you can't vote because you have a felony. Many states will say you only can't vote when you're sitting in prison. In fact, I happen to live in a state in which you can vote if you've got a felony conviction, as long as you're not sitting in prison at that time. If you're in jail, if you're in a halfway house, if you're on parole, probation, that sort of thing, you can still vote. And again, that should be the decision of the individual states. Here's Ayanna Presley transmitting to you the message the Democrats can't actually figure out how to win elections. And then when she throws down this defamatory nonsense about Donald Trump, did Donald Trump lead a violent insurrection? No, he didn't. Even Joe Biden's FBI concluded that he did not lead a violent insurrection. Was there a riot on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol building? Yes, there was. Were people punished far beyond anything that was reasonable for even being in the building at the time of that? Yes. Was it an insurrection? Well, that's an attempt to overthrow the government. I know what it means. What were the people there protesting? They said, we want you to count the votes legitimately. We want you to count only the votes that were cast legally. In other words, 
All those ballots that were sent out in violation of state law, absentee ballots that were sent out in some states to people who never requested them, those can't be counted. How about the ballots that came in after the deadline? Those can't be counted. How about the ballots that were cast in states where you have to have a signature on the ballot and a date on the ballot, and they don't have a signature or a date or either one? Those can't be counted. That's what the crowd was demanding. Is that an insurrection trying to overthrow our system of government? Or is that a request, do the elections legally and lawfully, and if you won't do it that way, then we're going to insist that you do it that way. That's not an insurrection. That was supporting America's current system of government. What Joe Biden's presence in the White House represents, that's an insurrection. In a moment, should the rich Sackler family behind Purdue Pharma get immunity for their role in the opioid crisis? A decision of the Supreme Court weighs in on that, and we'll find out more about it when they render that decision. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday and always glad to take your calls. I'll get back to calls in a moment, but I want to talk to Jim Burling, who serves as Vice President of Legal Affairs for Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, it's good to have you back. It's great to be with you again, Lars. I want you to give my audience uh, sort of a, I guess, the, the thumbnail sketch of what's going on now in this case, oral arguments in Harrington versus Purdue Pharma, and why this is so important, given what's happened with OxyContin in this country and with drug addiction and death and overdose and everything else, and how the Supreme Court is going to decide a very important issue in that. Sure. So as most people know, Purdue Pharma, Pharmacy, Pharmaceuticals, was selling oxycotton and it was doing it in a very aggressive way, minimizing the potential impacts that oxycotton could have to its customers. Hey, Jim, I'm going to interrupt for a moment only because I'm going to see if uh, Joel, my producer, can get us to a cleaner line for Jim so that people can understand what he's saying because that line is seriously messed up. Let's see if we can clean that up just a bit because I want you to hear this. I mean, I've had a couple of different opinions. I've got no dog in the fight. I don't own pharmaceutical stocks. I don't have a relationship with Purdue Pharma. I don't have any of that nonsense. And yet, uh, the accusation is made why OxyContin has caused a lot of people to become addicted to a drug. And then many of them went out. If you take a look at the scientific studies, they determine that an awful lot of the people who end up dying of overdose do not die of overdose to the pharmaceutical. They die of overdose to street drugs. Jim, that should be a bit better, I hope. I hope it is as well. Much so better. So as we were just talking about, yeah. can you hear me okay now? Yeah, yes, sir. Perfect. So as we were just talking about, Purdue was selling OxyContin, and people were getting addicted to it. Uh, after their supply would be diminished, after the doctors removed the prescriptions because they no longer needed it for medical purposes, People were addicted, and they went out to the streets and got it and became highly addicted to heroin, to uh, nowadays to fentanyl, 
and other addictive drugs. So a lot of people sued Purdue Pharmacy, and they were arguing Purdue is responsible for their addictions and for a lot of deaths as well, people who died of overdoses, part of the overdose crisis that we've had. And eventually, Purdue reached a settlement with a lot of the plaintiffs. And essentially, they said they were going to put $6 billion with a B into a fund of which the victims themselves would get less than a billion, but states, which also part of the litigation, would get a little over $5 billion for treatment programs and whatever states like spending money on. And most of the plaintiffs who had sued the pharmacy said that's okay. But a lot of them are still unhappy because the family that owned Purdue, the Sackler family, was getting off without any liability itself. It was a condition of the settlement. And the settlement was in bankruptcy court because the Purdue Pharmaceutical declared bankruptcy. So the settlement not only settled the issue between Purdue and the plaintiffs, the the government, the states, and the victims of the addictions, but it also said that the family, the Sackler family, who are not part of the bankruptcy settlement, would also be absolved of liability. And that's the issue at the court now. That was just argued a couple days ago. The question of, can a bankruptcy court absolve a third party, in this case, a Sackler family, of liability when the Sacklers were not part of the litigation in the first place? But Purdue insisted on this clause that the Sacklers would be immune. And some of the plaintiffs are saying, no, we want to go after the Sacklers later as well. And they shouldn't be immune because the bankruptcy court had no jurisdiction over them. And that's what the Supreme Court was wrestling with. And they they heard the oral arguments on Monday. Jim, based on the law, isn't the reason that we have corporations and limited liability companies and everything else because you can run a company and the company can be sued for its misdeeds? Does that include necessarily the right to then sue the people who owned the company as well? Well, shareholders generally in your corporate structure cannot be sued. You own stock in General Motors. You can't be sued if there is an accident. Uh, But if you are, in this case, the owner, and what happened here also is that when the Sackler family became aware of the potential liability, it took around $11 billion of the Purdue money, sold off the shares, and put that into their own personal accounts in order to insulate themselves from liability. And that's the rub here. Uh, can that really work? Can they be absolved of liability when they essentially raided or took corporate assets out in order to keep those out of the hands of the people suing? Now, the Sacklers will say, look, we pay taxes on this, 40% of the tax, and so the $6 billion are really not that far ahead. It gets a little confusing of where these dollars are going at any particular time. I guess to, to go back to your General Motors example, Let's say you own stock in a company and the company runs into legal difficulties. And you say, well, I think we ought to sell our stock in the company uh, because we don't know where this company is going. Uh, Because, you know, we own, say you own stock in Apple and Apple got sued for some amazing amount of money, which they could probably pay out of petty cash at Apple. Uh, I don't own any Apple stock either. Uh, Just so I don't have a dog, I don't have a dog in the fight. But if you sold your stock, and, and all you had was stock ownership, but not necessarily control of the company, uh, but your stock, you could vote your stock, you could vote for the board of directors and all that. 
are you then responsible uh, because you took your money out of a company that was in legal difficulty when you said they raided the money from Purdue? If they owned pieces of what Purdue was, if they owned, you know, by owning stock, you own a piece of that company. If you got a, a thousand shares and I own 10 shares, I own 1% of the company. Is that the company's money or is that my money? It's generally your money. Now, part of the issue here, and this is what has not been resolved, and this would be resolved in a future lawsuit should the Purdue Pharmaceutical lose this case, is did the Sacklers enrich themselves through some kind of knowledge of what was going on, a kind of an insider trading idea or theory that the Sacklers took the money out because they knew something was going wrong at the corporation, and they had knowledge that other people didn't have, and that would somehow make them liable. So was this after right the suit was after the suits were filed or before? Because I would before. think the first time you had a bunch of suits filed that you'd say, "Hey, things are going south," uh, but everybody knew they were being sued. This was before right. the suits were so, filed. So you, you know, and you're getting at the question of whether the Sacklers should be liable or not. That's something that isn't being resolved by the Supreme Court here. But on that question, should the Sacklers be liable or not? It really depends. Did they sue on information that everybody had? Or do they sue on some basis that they knew something that the general public didn't have? Did they have some sort of special responsibility? Now, I think it might be a tough case for the plaintiffs to go after the Sacklers and win in a case like this for all the reasons you're describing. But they are at least at the Supreme Court arguing that we have a right to go against the Sacklers and the bankruptcy court can't take that right away from us. Now, they may lose if they get that right. Uh, but they want that right to sue. Okay, but they, has this kind of question ever been before the Supreme Court? Not this particular type of question of whether or not a bankruptcy court can absolve a owner of a company, for example, that's not related to the litigation from liability. Now, there have been times when this has that the bankruptcy court has done this in the past. There have been a number of settlements like this in the past. But no one has ever challenged them at the Supreme Court like this, like the plaintiffs are doing in this case. Do you get a sense from the kind of questions that were asked during oral arguments of which direction this is going? I think that the court is very skeptical of the challengers' arguments. I think that the court wants to maintain the status quo, which is that a bankruptcy court can do this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, the, and members of the court were... Uh, we're skeptical of what was going on with the Sacklers, but I, you know, the transfer of money, Justice Amy Coney Barrett at one time said the Sacklers began transferring monies from Purdue to their accounts as the scope of the crisis began to unfold. And it's all the money they took out of the corporation that bothers her. Uh, but they question whether a ruling, what that would mean for the victims and their families and whether this is going to just put off anybody getting relief. The Lars Larson Show. Our truck hit a roadside. Want to listen to an interview again? Check out LarsLarson.com.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. I'll get to your calls in just a moment, but I got to tell you about this story. Um, it involves an 11-year-old girl in Colorado, and the parents of this girl are fit to be tied. They are so angry, and I completely understand and appreciate their anger. They should be angry. Here's what happens. Their 11-year-old girl is going on a field trip, and uh, the, 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 the students were supposed to be segregated by sex, as, as you'd expect. I mean, when I was in high school, I went to speech and debate uh, tournaments out of town. And sometimes we'd be two days, even three days uh, out of town and staying in a hotel, uh, that sort of thing. You didn't house the boys with the girls. And yet Jefferson County Public Schools in Colorado, who had promised to sexually segregate boys from the girls, told this girl, this 11-year-old girl, that she was going to be sharing a bed with a biological boy who was trans and uh and when she realized what was going to happen she said to the chaperones on the trip you can't do this you can't make me sleep in the same bed as a boy and she got on the phone called her parents and her parents rescued her from this situation uh and she just said this is wrong um she went to the bathroom called her mother who was on a trip as well uh, parents, as they should have, rescued the daughter from this situation. Schools should stop doing this. And I'll cite the reporting of the Post Millennial about this story. It was a field trip to the East Coast. Uh, and uh, this is nuts. This is absolutely crazy to tell a teenage girl or an 11 year old girl that she has to sleep in the same bed with a biological boy who says he identifies as a girl. This is nuts. Let me go to John, who's a naysayer, because we always put naysayers first. We always have for about 26 years, always will, at 866-439-5277. Hey, John, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about? Well, first of all, I'd like to say, as far as these converted transsexuals, I understand the palliative care for them runs between one hundred twenty dollars to $200,000 a year after they get even some of the changes. Uh, you guys were giving what you thought would be good advice as far as uh, the natural women should go to the political process. But I got a better idea. I think that would shock the the country. I think these women ought to line up, and if there's a transsexual get to go into the pool, they should get ready to take off and then just sit there on the, the launch pad or whatever and let that transsexual run the laps on his own. Well, that's a good, that, so we don't disagree, John, John, you and I di agree about that. But can I tell you what the problem is? Every one of the athletes who's finally spoken up, like Riley Gaines and others who've spoken up, have been told by their coaches and by their schools, if you object to the presence of this fake woman swimming against you, uh, then you're going to be off the team. So in other words, at that age, at, what's stand. that? I said they all need to make a stand against it. It's never going to change. I, that's the way I feel. And I think that will. Can't you just see the transsexuals swimming by themselves? Nobody else Well, I, I can see it, John, but I can also see every one of those girls being kicked off their team, except that'll happen out of, out of public view. They'll come home from the meet. I used to swim in junior high. And I, I wasn't the best swimmer on the team, but I was okay. Uh, and, and they would come home. Their coach would say, you're off the team. And then you'd say, well, then you just go to the media and you say to the media, I got kicked off my swim team because I, I opposed, uh, you know, a fake woman, fake girl swimming against us. And most of the media being woke as well is going to say, yeah, you, you're an ugly uh, transphobe. 
you're 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 against what what should happen. They're not going to get a friendly reception from most of the media and most of the politicians. So when you say tell this girl you're you're going to forfeit your membership on an athletic team, you're going to stop swimming. You're going to, you're, and, and if you're trying to get a scholarship at some point or be successful in high school, even if you're off the team only for a few weeks, if that would actually well, fix the problem, the, I would think, say, I would, I would endorse the, the idea. Big, I'm thinking about the big national meets, you know, maybe college or even, you know, workups to the Olympics. And well, John, can you, okay, but hold on. Can I ask you? It's like playing chess, you got to play three or four moves ahead. So you're on a swim team. You're at a major meet. You're and the and the standings you get from being in this meet are going to determine whether or not you make the cut to get say on the Olympics uh, team, just as you've said. And you say, "Coach, I ain't swimming in the pool with that fake girl." Coach says, "Okay, take a bench." Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Think through where this goes. The girl does not swim. She then misses the cut, and she's worked her whole you know, childhood to get to the point where she gets an opportunity to actually swim at the Olympics and you tell her, sit on the bench and don't do anything and people will be outraged when they see this one biological male who identifies as female swimming and you sitting on the bench. That may be the result. Yeah, but that, that one guy's forcing at least one person, one woman to miss the cut because he's going to... Yes, he is. He is, but your solution doesn't solve the problem for that girl. In fact, it takes everything she's done for her entire athletic career in junior high or high school, and it throws it out the window because all of a sudden she loses her standing to swim, and she doesn't get anything about it because the coach announces, because most of the coaches are woke. If, if there were coaches, and John, I've heard of very few coaches in the entire country that have stood up and told the school, I am not running trans on my team. I'm not going to let a fake woman, uh, you know, take part in my swimming team, running team, uh, volleyball, basketball, whatever. How many coaches can you name who've stood up and said, I will not do this? And the answer is very few. In fact, one doesn't even come to mind. I can name the individual athletes, some of them, Riley Gaines and others, but the coaches don't stand up and object. So the first thing that coach is going to do is say, you're off the team. And you've just taken a young lady who may have been swimming from, I don't know, fifth grade or sixth grade all the way to the ninth, tenth, or eleventh grade in high school. She's now got a chance to make the cut. And you say, you're going to make a difference by sitting on the bench instead of swimming. And what's going to happen is she'll get kicked off the team by a coach who believes in this trans garbage. Thanks for the call, by the way. Let's go to Alex. Hey, Alex, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, so similar thing. Um, I'm going to use MMA because that's uh, what I remember. So a couple of years ago, uh, TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, was a big thing in MMA. And basically what they did was they would test your testosterone levels to make sure they weren't too high, to make sure you weren't cheating. Yep. Well, I think that that's exactly what they should do with uh, the boys that are pretending to be girls playing in all these girls teams. Because like uh, someone called in earlier and you had said, you know, unfortunately they don't have to even do anything they just need to say i'm trans and they get to be on the girls teams for the well, most if part there yes. a rule put in place yeah exactly if there's a rule put in place where uh we you have to be on these uh things that change it you know whatever your your testosterone and you have to be under a certain level 
then that would, at the very least, deter a lot of these guys that are pretending to be girls from doing this stuff because they don't want to take those, you know, estrogen pills or whatever it is. And do you, do you know where the key flaw in all that is, Alex? I hate to tell you this, that it's, but... That it's against but, what they want. <laughs> right. And, and what I've suggested is, Alex, can you think of a single coach? Would you imagine that if there were a major high school or college coach who had stood up to object to this, that you'd hear about it? Right. Well, and the thing well is, ha- you have you heard United have States- you heard of a single high college coach, for instance, who said, I'm not going to run trans athletes on my team? No, yeah, and I understand that exactly. That's that's another big huge. So, so when you say we need a rule change, guess who has to approve the rule change? Yeah, well, and that's what I was trying to say is, uh, United. I believe it's uh, United States or United States uh, anti-doping agency or something like that. They're the ones who regulate all of that for MMA, and they've apparently not taken a position on that either. But I mean, if we could get the rule changed, I'd agree with you. I don't think it's going to happen. But thank you for the call. Back in a moment. Or Chief National Initiatives Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, former California lawmaker, although he knew where to go, Texas, and a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, great to be with you again, Lars. I'm glad for what you wrote at The Federalist because this gas bag John Kerry, former Secretary of State, one-time failed presidential candidate, and uh, manages to marry rich women one right after the other, hops on his private jet, as you say, flies to Dubai for the U.N.'s Climate Change Conference to demand that no new coal-fired plants be built anywhere in the world. China is building huge numbers of coal-fired plants, while America is abandoning coal fire because I'm in favor of burning coal cleanly. I don't think the Chicoms do. I think we do. We're giving it up, and they're building coal-fired plants to beat the ban. What the heck is going on? Well, again, it's it's a lot of virtue signaling uh, that, and of course. Uh, creating a lot of regulatory uncertainty because what happens when the climate czar goes to Dubai and says these things is it affects the capital markets. And it may seem kind of boring, like, oh, the capital markets, what's that all about? Well, you know, it costs a bit of money to build a coal-fired power plant. And so while the Biden administration has been trying to put regulations in to, to choke it off, it's even more effective if you can cut off the dollars. And so what they're doing is they're making it untenable for anyone to invest in newer, more efficient, and in cleaner domestic American energy. They're scaring those dollars away. And in the meantime, China is building two every week. And they already uh, have uh, six times the amount of coal to generate electricity last year than we did. And, Lars, they're planning on building the equivalent of the entire U.S. coal fleet as it exists today. That's what China's doing right now. Yeah, and China's a net importer of coal. I know they buy from the United States. They buy from Australia. I think they also buy from North Korea uh, to help the, Korea, help the North Koreans stay in business, you know, which is another uh, you know, check mark against them. But America, correct me if I'm wrong, America has enough coal to last for literally hundreds of years if we chose to burn it cleanly and with current technology, right? That's correct. 
that's that's absolutely correct. And what's even more important is if you're trying to save the planet, right? If you if you if you think that carbon dioxide emissions are a big problem, I mean, set aside for a moment that we should be building a whole bunch of nuclear power plants. But think about it: if you increase the cost of electricity here, which is what these policies do, it forces more manufacturing to go to places like China. Yep. And then what you do is when you want to buy that product that you used to make here, what do you do? You put it on an airplane or a ship, and you ship it across the Pacific Ocean to here so that we can have it. And at the end of the day, there's even more emissions and more pollution than there would have been if you simply made it here with American energy and American jobs. Yeah, and, and you've you've successfully exported your carbon dioxide pollution. I mean... Chuck, I got to be honest. I don't. I, I think nuclear power is great. We should be building the plants. I think CO two is plant food. I don't think it's a pollutant. I don't think it's causing global warming. I think that CO two is an artifact of a globe, a, a warming globe. But but you're right. Ship all the jobs. Ship all the manufacturing to China. Let them build coal plants. And if you're really concerned about CO two, does it matter whether the CO two comes from a Chinese? communist uh, coal plant or or an american coal plant well only in the sense that i don't think the chinese build clean coal or you know modern uh coal plants that would uh, meet u.s standards and i think we do so the difference is you manage to move the co2 to the other side of the planet but we we all share the same air shed right and we don't even really get the local pollution benefit either because a well-placed bribe will allow you to avoid China's uh, air pollution control such as they exist. There was a study not long ago by the Environmental Protection Agency that estimated that some 80% of the mercury that we find in our uh, soil here in America comes from foreign sources. Uh, That would be mostly China, and it drifts across the Pacific Ocean and gets deposited on our shores. You could say the same about our nitrous oxide pollution on the West Coast, that uh, huge amounts of the increased pollution in the West Coast, including uh, in the Portland area, come from China, come from China's huge use of energy and the fact that they don't have the same diligence in their pollution controls that we do because it costs more money to keep those pollution controls operational. Now, tell me this, though, Chuck. John Kerry, I think of him as a gas bag. I think he's kind of a you know overblown guy who wants to talk about Genghis Khan and things like this. He's irritating more ways than I can count, but he's not a stupid guy. I mean, he's smart enough to marry rich women, one or one right after the other, so he knows all the things you just said, doesn't he? Well, I mean, you would think, but there is a certain uh, strand of thought that says, well, you know, if America doesn't do it, who's going to do it? We have to lead by example. Uh, and this is the one area of cooperation we have with the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party. And I think they delude themselves into thinking that somehow the Chinese Communist Party cares about any of this stuff. Uh, I think to the contrary, what they're doing is they're masking their policies uh, and calling them green. So what the Chinese do is they're saying, oh, look at all the wind power we're building. Look at all the solar power we're building with the Uyghur slaves that we employ. Uh, while at the same time, preferring not to talk about the two coal-fired power plants they're building every week. And what they're doing, Lars, is even more disturbing. Uh, we call it in the military a deception plan. What they're doing is they're pretending that they're going green. <laughs> while at the same time, making the Chinese economy resilient 
in the case of warfare, if they ever go to war against Taiwan, a lot of analysts think, well, they would never do that because they have to import all of this oil through the Straits of Malacca next to Singapore. Well, what, what's happening right now is the Chinese have moved an enormous amount of their transportation grid to electricity. They have high-speed rail. They sell more than half of the world's EV cars in China. And so they're in, they're in uh, urban elite are increasingly using uh, electrical-powered cars. Well, in China, of course, that means the cars are powered by coal. And so what China is doing, lastly, that is very fascinating and to me disturbing, is they are going in really big with coal-to-liquids technology. That's the same technology that Hitler's Germany used to turn right. Germany's large coal reserves into high-quality lubricants and very high-quality aviation fuel. China is doing the same today. And what they're doing, Lars, is they're making themselves immune from the U.S. Navy cutting off their oil imports through the Straits of Malacca. And they're cloaking it to people like John Kerry as, oh, look at us, we're going green. Unbelievable. That is a former or a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Chuck DeVore, National Initiatives Officer at the, uh, officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Chuck, it's a pleasure. Colonel, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. He's also the author of The Crisis, The House Never United, a novel of early America. Glad to be with you. Always glad to take your call. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed, too. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And boy, does Joe Biden have problems. I mean, Bidenomics is not selling to America. But now his problems just got worse because the Muslims, Muslim voters in several states in America, have now declared a jihad against the Biden presidency and, of course, against Biden's reelection. Let me get into the details of that in a moment. First, welcome to the program. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to jump in to what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's, you're always welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we'll, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. Yeah, naysayers go first on this show. Always have, always will. At 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. At our Twitter poll, yeah, we decided to focus on this question. In California, they have already spent north of $10 billion on California's high-speed rail project that has been underway for the better part of the last 15 years. So, do those numbers. $9 billion. Well, actually, 10 or 11 billion by now. Uh, 15 years, how much high speed rail have they built? Not one single mile of track. After spending north of 10 million and spending the last 15 years, and now the Biden administration wants to give another $3 billion to California. 
So the way I framed the question for you, should we cut our losses with California's badly named high-speed rail project or fork out for more funding? I would say cut our losses right now. I think that's the sensible thing to do. You can find today's Twitter poll or X poll question at Lars Larson Show or at LarsLarson.com, our website. You can vote there instead. Just don't vote twice. We believe in only voting once here on the conservative side of the aisle. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and is brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC, well, great, great conservative group. I wouldn't go anywhere near AARP. I mean, when you remember that they were the ones that foisted Obamacare on America and they've stood up for so many of the wrong things. I wouldn't go near AARP. I have never been a member of that group. I never will be. But go to AMAC instead, amac.us or 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Yesterday, I asked you whether Congress should let the FBI keep its power to spy on Americans. My answer to that was no. 93% of you voted no. Only 7% of you voted yes. Glad to have you with me. If you want to jump in, we call it the best conversation in talk journalism, and I think we live up to that at 866-439-5277. Coming up later this hour, the U.S. economy avoided a recession in 2023, but will things take a turn for the worse in the new year? We're going to talk about that. If the FBI knew about Hunter Biden's laptop since 2019, why didn't they confirm its authenticity when the New York Post published a story about a year later, and then social media companies declared the laptop to be a Russian fraud, and the FBI sat silent. Well, the FBI director got some tough questions on that on Capitol Hill. We'll talk about that. And our tax hikes soon to be in your future unless the Congress takes some action. We'll talk about the expiring Donald Trump tax cuts. And yes, they could go away. And take just a moment to cast a vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X and or LarsLarson.com. And a reminder, check out our Instagram feed. We try to keep that one provocative as well. But let me get back to what is going on with Muslim voters in America. Muslim leaders, this is from Politico, from several swing states on Saturday descended on Dearborn, Michigan to launch a national campaign against the reelection of President Joe Biden. Now, why? They don't like the fact that Joe Biden is backing Israel, that he's critical of the Hamas terrorists. Not critical enough, but he is critical all the same. Muslim voter organizers from Michigan, Minnesota, Arizona, Wisconsin, Florida, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania are calling the campaign hashtag Abandon Biden. Take a listen to what some of them had to say. Let's take the President one. Biden has lost the 2024 election. We are not powerless as American Muslims. We are powerful. We don't only have the money, but we have the actual votes. And we will use that vote to save this nation from itself. To save this nation from itself because Joe Biden comes out and condemns the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel on October 7 because he stands up for our ally Israel. Now, the leaders say they'll run separate pressure campaigns in their respective states. Let me tell you why you should worry about this. Two different concerns. Number one, they're going to campaign against Biden. I'm fine with that. But here's the concern I have separately. 
You've got a growing block of voters who identify not as Americans, but they identify based on their religious and cultural attraction to Islam. In other words, you can say, well, Lars, you have Christian voters out there and Jewish voters out there. Yes, but we don't say, well, if Muslims were behind the terrorist attack on October 7th in Israel, then we're with the Muslims. No, you can be anti-terrorist. And in this case, the growing Muslim population is about three and a half million people. That's about half the size of the Jewish population. It is about 1% of all the people in this country. In 2020, about 59% of so-called Arab Americans, I don't like the idea of hyphenated Americans, but they supported Biden. Well, now it sounds like he's going to lose their votes. That's good for America because we need to get rid of Joe Biden. On the other hand, it is bad to see that a certain religious group is simply going to say, we're going to back up the actions of fellow Muslim groups, even when they are terrorists. Glad to get your calls, 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Like this one that came in from Richard Exnesios in Mount Hermon, Louisiana. Lars, I live about six miles from Franklinton, Louisiana, several months ago. The town installed two charging stations in a free public parking lot. Last week, I noticed they now have black covers over the chargers. They're not in use anymore. What a waste of money. In the last year, I've noticed only two EVs in the entire town. So why install the chargers? No clue. The town is not big city, just your everyday country town in Louisiana. Thanks, as always, signed Richard. Richard, thanks very much. Send those emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And one little update on electric cars, a brand-new Consumer Reports evaluation of electrics versus gas. Electric vehicles have almost 80% more problems, and they're generally less reliable than cars propelled by internal combustion engines, according to Consumer Reports. Plug-in hybrid electric vehicles have an even worse record, an average of 150% more problems, according to Consumer Reports. By contrast, ordinary hybrid cars are bright spot. They've got about a quarter percent or about 25% fewer problems than gasoline-powered cars. It suggests where we ought to be going, and it's not toward electric vehicles or plug-in hybrids or anything like that. But, you know, the Biden administration, we know where they're going. Coming up in a moment, is there going to be a recession in the brand-new year of 2024? We're going to talk to our favorite economist, Pete Earle, coming up next. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Pete Earle, who is an economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. Pete, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here. 
So tell me this. Uh, the big question is, I think Bidenomics is not working out for anybody, least of all Joe Biden. And most Americans see uh, that this is a terrible situation. But we managed to dodge an actual recession in 2023. What's 2024 got in store? That is the uh, that's the thirty three trillion dollar question, and like all economists, I have some some thoughts on that. Um, you know, m- recently, what you've found is that what I've seen, and what, what I think people have found is that more and more economists are starting to lean away from the uh, recession predictions, which were being made early this year, and uh, and turn towards the idea of a soft landing. But actually, if you look. Past, at, at past recessions, what I have found is certainly between 1990 and 91, 2001, 2007, 2008, and even 2020, on the eve of a recession, there's actually a pretty loud call for a soft landing. So soft landing calls tend to rise before a recession. And the reason why is because unemployment usually moves nonlinear really, right before we go into a recession. So you have unemployment rising, and all of a sudden it spikes up before anybody has a chance to do anything about it. The Federal Reserve tends to start cutting rates about five months after a recession starts. And we're watching right now because on Friday there's going to be an employment number. And if the U3 number, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the, 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 the total unemployment rate, which is now 3.9, if it hits 4.0, we will trigger something called the SOM rule, which going back to 1958 has predicted every recession. So Friday morning, we're going to get a very closely watched unemployment number. Every single recession has been predicted by that, that rule? Yes, sir. Back to 1958. Wow. So... How's it? How's it? We seem to. I mean, I always remember recessions as kind of sneaking up on us, and and I try to pay attention to the numbers. Uh, and yep. yet, that one it should allow the Fed to take some action. And, and and I guess I have to ask you out of curiosity. You mentioned they wait mm-hmm. till five months into a recession before they start cutting rates to jack things up. Yep. Why do they wait five months? I think that's a sign of how quickly and how nonlinearly unemployment jumps. It starts slowly, and then it springs up. And I think that they are usually sort of cautious. But I would say this. You know, the other day, just a few days, it was actually last weekend, last Sunday or so, gold hit a record. The last time it hit it, it I was, saw that. It at the current level. Yeah. So what that is is one of two things. That's either the market has been so convinced that the Fed, after tightening rates, is going to loosen them a lot next year, that it's actually, that's actually the, the market worrying about the value of your dollar by jumping into gold. It's that and or worry about a recession suddenly appearing. So, uh, you know, under the surface, there's a lot of concern, no matter what the uh, what the predictions are. I think we will be in a recession by September 2024. Now, I'm not going to say because I don't know how severe it will be or how long it will last. I can definitely say that if the um, if the administration or any of these other political bodies try to do things like, uh, you know, start programs to get us out of a recession, it will almost certainly make it longer. But I do believe we are headed for recession in the next Eight to nine months. Hey, Pete, isn't that exactly what Democrats like to do? I seem to remember that FDR made the 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 uh, the uh, uh, depression last a lot longer than it should have lasted because of government intervention. Absolutely, and I, you know, my concern is that because what we're seeing right now is the consumer who has been spending for far longer than anyone predicted. We saw on, on, on Black Friday and on, and on uh, Cyber Monday that the, that the American consumer seems to be finally petering out. Um, my worry is uh, the sudden initiation of some sort of a uh, consumer support program or a consumer credit extension program or something like that to keep what really keeps 70% of GDP afloat running. 
So uh, that's my concern is when it becomes clear that consumption is finally going to get back to where it might have been, you know, months ago without the pandemic stimulus, without the credit expansion. Uh, my worry is that we'll see some sort of a program, you know, within the months before the election to try to get consumer spending again. Yeah. And what's that going to mean? Is that just shoveling out more cash? Because that's also what the Democrats seem to view as the solution to inflation uh, or any other problem is shovel out more cash and hope for the best. Well, yeah, I mean, there's only three ways they're going to come up with money if they want to do that. They're either going to float more debt, of which we've got plenty already. We're almost to $34 trillion. They'll either print more money, which debases the value of the dollar, or they'll tax us, which is really strange, because if you think of taxing from one side and giving to consumers on the other side, that's sort of like uh, you know digging, digging a hole to you know, throw a cigarette <laughs> and then uh, bury it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the solution that you should just sort of like let the economy heal on its own is anathema to both sides. I mean, nobody wants to do that, but certainly uh, the party that uh, stands to lose, uh, you know, office right now, if things get worse, they're going to, I think they're going to pull out all the stops and try to keep the, keep the, uh, keep balls in the air. Now, will the, will the Republican Congress go along with it? Because, uh, you know, the House could stop this. They could say to the president, you're not going to shove a lot more cash. We've already seen the damage that can do. So we're not going to let you do that. Or will they uh, lose their backbones like Republicans also tend to do? You know, uh, I'm a little pessimistic about that because right now there's, there, there are no incentives in place for being the adults in the room. You know, I think I think Republicans learned after after many many years that they may you know they may as well spend money too because it's very easy to be outspent by 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 the party that you know makes that uh, you know makes that part of its uh, you know part of its prime motive you know so I I don't think that they will hold the line I don't think that, that there are political or you know other rewards uh, for for being the adult in the room anymore that's that's my concern I know that's a very sort of pessimistic view but I mean I have to be uh, have to be honest. I got to tell you, one of the concerns I've got, Pete, and I know anecdotal evidence is not great economics evidence, but uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, one is my wife and I like a particular uh, chain of coffee, and it's not Starbucks. I think they burn their beans. But there's another chain <laughs> called Dutch Bros. And, uh, and I, you know, we'll pull up there, and we've gotten to know some of the people because we're in there often enough. And uh, I said, where's so-and-so? And he said, oh, everybody's hours got cut. I said, you're cutting back hours? Have you lost business? And they said, well, business is down a bit. And I thought, that's interesting because they are a chain. And so you wonder if the words coming down from on high cut everybody's hours. Uh, that's not a good sign. The other one that was more disturbing, we were doing some Christmas shopping the other night, driving to a, a local mall. And Tina said, look at that, my wife. And uh, I said, what? Mm -hmm. And she said, there's no line at Chick-fil-A. We, the two of us, have never seen a Chick-fil-A anywhere wow, in America that we've really ever seen. Interesting anecdote. Oh, huh. because there, it was like you drive by and there's always 15 people waiting in line. I said, I've always yeah. observed, I said, wouldn't it be great to have a business where you always have a line of customers out the door at all hours of the day? And we saw one without, a, there was one car at the drive up and, and it wasn't at some oddball hour. It wasn't during a big event or anything like that. I said, yeah. I've never seen a Chick-fil-A without a line. So I put a lot of value in those sort of anecdotes, and that's actually why the Fed does the Beige Book, because they collect anecdotes from like of that sort from all around the country. One thing that we have seen for sure is that, um, you know, by different measures, wages have risen a little, but the part of the story you don't typically get is that hours have been cut. So actually, when you, when you, when you calculate the small amount that wages have risen, which, by the way, is far less than inflation has, uh, has, has hurt uh, no earth buying power, but, but when, you, when you take that against 
the reduction of hours, the uh, um, uh, the, the hourly wage, uh, or I'm sorry, the number of hours per week on average, um, it's really people are actually losing hours. So the combination of losing hours and losing purchasing power because of inflation, you know, I mean, we're starting to see it in consumption. Well, and what's crazy is, Pete, the politicians seem to be dumb as a pile of bricks because, (laughs) no, the other day there's a little town, um, a prosperous little town, Renton, it's near Seattle, and and what they have a vote on? A $19 minimum wage. Now, this isn't Los Angeles. This is a town outside of Seattle. 19 bucks an hour. And I thought, great, you're going to walk in and the boss is going to say there's good news and bad news. The good news is you're making $19 an hour. The bad news is you're working 75% of your regular hours. Do the math. Yeah, there's that. Or, or another thing I've said is whenever I see fight for 15 or fight for 20 or something like that, I think of that as a make-work program for AI, for kiosks and AI, for automatic yep. you know, machines that do that. That's really all it is. I understand that people want to make more money, but they have to understand that these imposing these one-size-fits-all sort of strictures about wages and all that sort of thing, and this nonsense about the living wage, all of that sort of thing ensures job losses over time. And it actually accelerates what would be a very slow process if just by productivity. And I think you're right, because when you're paying $40,000 to the young lady or the young man to take your order at the drive-thru, you say, how much could I automate that for? Oh, it's suddenly pencils. That's Pete Earle from the American Institute for Economic Research. Pete, thanks very much. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. Interviews with authors, experts, and a healthy dose of opinion. Find it at LarsLarson.com. Why didn't the FBI just say, hey, the, 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 the laptop's real? Why didn't you just tell everybody the laptop's real? We're not vouching for what's on it, but it's real. This isn't a, 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 a fiction. Now, that is Senator John Kennedy, who's one of my favorite members of the United States Senate. He's from Louisiana. No, he's not one of those Kennedys. He's of the Louisiana Kennedys. Haven't had him in the show in a while, but he's always welcome back. But he was questioning Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, who took over after the corrupt James Comey uh, took an exit from the FBI. But Kennedy was demanding to know, why didn't you just tell America the laptop was real? Let me tell you why this is so important heading into election year, where I think the Democrats are not going to hesitate to cheat if they think that's what's going to get them past the finish line in November of next year. And their chance of getting past the finish line right now with Joe Biden running the race doesn't seem very likely. But remind yourself of the details. The FBI had the Hunter Biden laptop, in its possession in November of 2019. The New York Post, the oldest newspaper in America, published a story or tried to publish a story during the presidential election of 2020, about a year later. What did the FBI know at the time it had the Hunter Biden laptop? They looked at the laptop. They determined that it was real. Now, that laptop is chock full of all the references like the big guy, 
The fact that Hunter Biden was running scams in foreign countries, including Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Moscow, and Beijing. His family was getting tens of millions of dollars. We know that for a fact today. Didn't know it in 2020. Do know it today. His family, according to the bank records obtained by the House Oversight Committee on Capitol Hill, I don't even have to reference the New York Post or any other publication. The House Oversight Committee can prove that the Biden crime family got $24 million at least. It may be more than that, but it's at least $24 million. And that money flowed into America and they attempted to disguise it. They ran it through shell corporations. They disguised it as checks written to uh, James Biden and even Joe Biden that were labeled loan repayment. I don't believe that Joe Biden actually loaned his brother $200,000, but I do know he got a $200,000 check just a short time after his brother James got some of that Chinese communist money. And if you say, Lars, this is ancient history, why do we care about it today? Because it makes a huge difference. For two reasons. Number one, Joe Biden is bought and paid for by communist China. And communist China does not have America's best interests at heart. So should the American public have been warned in the fall of 2020 as we headed up to that catastrophic election in which the Democrats cheated? They shut down the vote counts in the middle of the night on phony excuses. I will not leave behind the notion that that was a fraudulent election. But could we have known about the information on the Hunter Biden laptop? If you might remember, and I want to remind you of this, 51 former intelligence officials, all of them loyal to the Democrat Party, wrote a letter, signed a letter, in which they declared the laptop's contents were a Russian information operation. They tried to shut it down. They tried to say, don't believe any of this stuff about Hunter Biden or the big guy, Joe Biden. Don't believe about all these other schemes and shenanigans that they're running. Don't believe it. It's all Russian disinformation. And guess who bit on that? The Washington Post, uh, the, the New York Times and others all declared to the American public, this is all just Russian disinformation. And then what happened? Well, the FBI knew the truth of that. And Senator John Kennedy was trying to get Chris Ray to tell him, why wouldn't you tell the American public what was really going on? Because we had an election at stake. We had information about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden that compromised Joe Biden. We had Joe Biden, who at that same time had been on the debate stage with Donald Trump. And when Trump challenged him and said, you and your family have made millions of dollars from communist China, something we know to be true to a fact. You know, the fact is Joe Biden and his family made $24 million from foreign countries, most especially from China. And Joe Biden deliberately denied it. He explicitly denied it. He said, my family has made no money from communist China. I have made no money from communist China. We now know that that was a lie. And the FBI, the FBI says, well, we we know that the laptop is real. We know what's on it is real. Take a listen to the way uh, Christopher Ray, current head of the FBI, tries to answer the question from Senator John Kennedy. Well, I, I, as you might imagine, the FBI cannot, especially in a time like that, be talking about an ongoing investigation. Second, I would tell you that at least my understanding is that both the FBI folks involved in the conversations and the Twitter folks involved in the conversations both say that the FBI did not 
direct Twitter to uh, suppress. But others were story. in government. Well, I can't. Again, I can't speak to others in government. Now, that's part of the point that I was trying to make because the fifth. Yes, sir, but opinion, you're the FBI. You're not part of the White House and part of Homeland Security. You're not supposed to be political. You see all this controversy going on. Why didn't the FBI said, "Time out, folks. We're not getting in the middle of this, but the laptop's real." Again, we have to be very careful about what we can say, especially in the middle of uh, an election season. Now, let me tell you why I think that is the purest hogwash from Christopher Ray. You saw the FBI under James Comey come out in the summer of 2016 as the Democrat Party was about to choose Hillary Clinton as its nominee. And what did they do? They announced, well, we've had an investigation going on and we have cleared Hillary Clinton. They did no such thing. You had James Comey declare to the American public why no responsible prosecutor would ever bring charges against Secretary Clinton for the things that she did, like destroying tens of thousands of public documents. They put that out as a way of cleansing Hillary Clinton as much as you can clean up that old bird. And, and declaring her to be okay. They did that because they knew, they knew that if they didn't do it, that would hang over her all the way to election day. Well, it didn't do her any good in 2016. Donald Trump won. But then comes 2020. The FBI knows the truth. They know that the story about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden is not Russian disinformation. And they watch as 51 former intelligence officials from our government we're saying, don't believe any of that. And the FBI knew what the truth was, and they decided to keep the American public in the dark. I think that's absolutely wrong. Twitter suppressed the New York Post. Former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, she was posting about the laptop and its contents. They, they suppressed her tweets as well. IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley testified the FBI verified the authenticity of the laptop in November of 2019. The president's son's attorneys appeared to admit the contents were real in a February letter to the DOJ demanding an investigation into the guy who ran the repair shop where a coked up Hunter Biden decided to drop the laptop off for repair because he had spilled something liquid in it. God knows what that was. He was the guy who turned over the laptop's hard drive to authorities. And remember, Donald Trump got impeached the first time because he was asking people in Ukraine, president of Ukraine, you need to investigate these corrupt activities that are going on. And what the Democrats did was he, they said, look, the president is just trying to get his political opponent, dirty him up with a bunch of dirty laundry. No, that's what the Democrats do. What the Democrats do is they ship out fake information to the American public. The Steele dossier is a fantastic example of that. And the FBI runs interference. When a Democrat needs to be protected, the FBI does it. When a Republican could use the same kind of protection, the FBI says, oh, I'm sorry, we can't talk about that. We've got an election coming up. Fine to be with you and always glad to take your calls. We'll talk to our friend Peter Roth about the expiring Trump tax cuts coming up next. for real red meat.
Street Radio, The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And after too long an absence, our friend Peter Roth joins me, Newsweek contributing editor and the guy who can answer the question, with America maybe headed toward a recession in 2024, but we have a presidential election on the way, uh, is Joe Biden going to do anything uh, to try to persuade the Congress? Maybe we should keep those Trump tax cuts from 2017. I think they're they're good law, and I think they ought to stay in place. The question is, will the Congress agree with that? Peter, welcome back. Hello, Lars. How are you? I'm doing well. I won't be doing as well if the Congress lets the tax cuts expire, and, and I don't think it makes any sense for them to expire in the coming year. Well, the tax cuts will expire in 2025. It was a, it was a, because of the odd way that they plan all this out in Washington, they weren't able to make them permanent. They were able to enact them for a, for a, a short window. But some of the benefits of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, like the um, automatic uh, uh, full expensing of business expenditures and the research and development credits are already starting to expire. And right now, Congress is trying to decide whether or not they're going to renew them out through 2025 or, in fact, make them permanent. And they should because they're good for economic growth. And what's good for economic growth is good for you and me and everyone who's listening. Yep. I mean, Peter, for example, that the automatic or the full expensing, uh, I know it's getting into tax stuff, and I'm not a tax expert, but I tell people on my little scale, if I said, I want to add one more producer, but we're going to need computers, we're going to need space, we're going to need all this stuff, and I have to spend the money, but then I have to spend three to five years getting that written off on my taxes, but if I could write it all off this year, that would make a big difference. Think about the company that's in that spot. You know, the full expensing of, of tax uh, business expenses would allow a company to say, we can afford to do it because this year we had a good year. We don't know what the years ahead are going to be, but this year was a good year. We can afford to, you know, replace some equipment, to buy some new equipment and bring on some more employees. And instead, they want to let it go. It it doesn't make any sense to take that stuff and, out, and, does it? And there's a, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of the economy now runs on information. And the machines that process information and the programs that process information are expensive, and yep. they're being rapidly rapidly replaced, rapidly upgraded. And so be able to make those investments and write them off immediately. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to be still writing off a machine or a computer system or a facility that they're no longer using. But if you eliminate the immediate expansion, expensing, that's what sometimes happens. You know, we, we've already replaced the system, but we're still drawing down the, the tax benefit rather than doing it immediately. That's the kind of stuff that's necessary for small businesses to become medium-sized businesses and medium-sized businesses to become big businesses. Well, that the other means th- more jobs. The other thing is, Peter, I've always thought about this. You have a really big bank, you know, knock them off the, uh, knock, knock your socks off kind of a profitable year. So you say, we're going to do this. And then they say, well, but boss, we're going to have to write that off, say a computer or a vehicle or whatever, three to five years. And you say, then next year, when we have a really bad year and we don't actually make a profit or we have a much lower profit, and you say, but boss, we have the write-off from last year. And you say, yeah, we have the write-off during a year when we didn't make a, a big profit. What good does that do us? Exactly. As I was growing up, my father used to remind me that before you could deduct it, you have to make it. 
And if you're not making money, the de- the deduction is of no value. Right. All right. Gee, you know, it, it took a little while, but finally that started to make sense to me. And, you know, fortunately, I'm talking to some guys on Capitol Hill this morning, and there seems to be some agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans on Capitol Hill that they have to do this. And I hope they get it done quickly. I hope they get it done before the end of the year so that this doesn't become a negotiating point later on when the continuing resolutions run out and they have to they have to come up with a year-long CR or a budget or whatever they're going to do to fund the government. They shouldn't be playing politics with economic incentives. No, and, and Peter, the other piece of this that really seems bizarre, if, if dad comes home to a family and says, hey, family, we're going to save money because we're going to do things this way, whatever the this way is, and the family says, oh, that sounds like a great idea. We'll save some money. And then dad says, but we're only doing it for 24 months, and after that we're not doing it again. You'd say, if it's a good idea now, if it was a good idea in 2017, what has changed that doesn't make the tax cuts a good idea for you know uh, five years later and and, and yeah, six you, years you, later? And yeah, and I don't understand you're, you're, you're that thinking right. by Congress. Well, it, 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 part of it is that the, the 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 Democrats at least have a have a view of the economy as static that it's that it's always going to be roughly the same size, and if you earn, then I lose. That it's a zero. That it's a, that there's a that, that that somebody is is losing because somebody else is winning. Yep. What we understand as good free marketeers is that as long as the economy is getting bigger, there's more money to divide up. And you know, if if, if you want to do stuff. That's that's socialist in nature. That's European in nature. You know, I I may not like it, but let's pay for it. How do we pay for it? By growing the economy. So this this you know income inequality and all the rest of that nonsense is all is all based on this idea that the economy is static. Well, you look at the you know look at the Dow. Look where it is now versus where it was when you know Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980. It, it's it's tripled, quadrupled. Um, you know, in value, the economy is much, much bigger than it was when Reagan came into office. Why? Because Reagan took the top rates from up, up around 90% and brought them down to, to, you know, into the 30s. And so people who work harder and make more money can keep more of what they earn. So that's an incentive to grow your business. That's an incentive to hire more people. That's an incentive to work harder because you get to you get to keep more of it. What's the incentive to work harder if the government comes in and takes it all? There is no, no incentive. And, and there are better what they ways do. to spend your time. Peter, I think of it as pie. I don't get to enjoy pie as much because I'm a type two diabetic, but uh, I don't want the same size pie with everybody fighting over how to slice it up thinly. Uh, I want the pie to get bigger so that everybody right. gets a bigger piece of pie. And and you're right. The Democrats don't seem to be capable of understanding that concept. And, and you don't even have to make a bigger pie. You just make more pies so more people can get pies of the same size. You know, it's, they, they don't talk about this. But when the economy is strong, income equality disappears yep because the people at the lower end of the spectrum are making more and the people at the upper end of the spectrum are making more and typically the people at the lower end of the spectrum are making more at a faster rate 
Yeah, and they're not only that, but usually their increases are even bigger in percentage terms. That's Peter Roth, who's a Newsweek contributing editor. Peter, thanks a lot for all the things you do for us, and we appreciate your time. Glad to get your emails. That's talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed. Might provoke a thought or two. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. the health we're all on our okay it's a nice ride it's going to happen stand by playback and now Lars. real red meat radio i may be a white boy but i'm not stupid this is the Lars larson show somebody at the white house has been smoking the devil's lettuce honestly provocative talk radio more than half the women in my cabinet more than more than half the people in my cabinet more than half the women in my administration are women Lars. Our beloved Republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border, and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. Now, I want to warn you about something that's coming right at you right now. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Yep, that's right. They're saying we can't stop Trump any other way. So what we have to do is persuade Americans he's going to be a crazy, insane dictator. Why, he says it with his own mouth. Actually, I'm going to let you listen to the whole soundbite so you can decide for yourself. But my conclusion is Donald Trump only says on day one, I'm going to close the border and I'm going to start doing everything we can to drill, drill, drill. Natural gas, oil, uranium, if we still have any that hasn't been sold to the Russians or others by the Democrats. Yes, he's planning to be a dictator about closing the border and drilling for oil. And I know that I I suspect, I mean, I've only met Donald Trump on a few occasions. He's been on the show. You've heard him here. But I suspect that Donald Trump knows exactly how to tweak the mainstream media and his political opponents and the rhinos on the Republican side of the aisle. He knows exactly how to get their goat, and then he gets them going. And all they do is talk about Donald Trump more. And God bless him. That's why he's going to win, and that's why Joe Biden is going to lose, assuming that he actually makes it to the finish line this coming November. In any case, glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, I'm going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to me. The address is easy, talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places. One is on X or Twitter, at Lars Larson Show, and on our website at LarsLarson.com. In a moment, I'll play that whole soundbite for you, but theoretically, Joe Biden will make it to the actual November. November election. Theoretically, his party will give him the nomination because they don't have too many options otherwise. Kamala Harris is not an option. Gavin Newsom is not an option. And yet Joe himself, most of his own party does not want him to run for re-election. And in fact, just this week, Joe Biden stood in front of a group of political at a, a fundraiser who's raising money uh, for his effort. And he said to them, I probably wouldn't even be running, but Trump is running. So I have to run which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Why do you have to run for president because Donald Trump is running? I'll get to that because here's the logic they're going to try and use. But here's what all these forces are up against. And let me tell you who's on one side. On one side, you've got Joe Biden, the Democrat Party, 
almost all of the mainstream legacy media, they all hate Donald Trump with a passion. Now, they want to make you fearful of Donald Trump. And I'll point out to you, they tried to do this in 2015 and 2016. Do you remember all the predictions that were made? And as we head up to this election, I'm going to put them together in an audio reel uh, where we can play it for you. But I'll remind you, there were people saying if Donald Trump becomes president, Wall Street is going to collapse. It didn't. It prospered. They, they said the economy will fall into the ditch. It didn't. It prospered. Why, he's a racist and he's an anti-Semite. People of color and people of different faiths, they'll be very much his victims. Well, no, as a matter of fact, no. Oh, he, he hates homosexuals. No, don't think that's true either. And I didn't think there was reason to believe it when they said it. They said all these things and they made all these predictions. Donald Trump will get us into more wars. Why, he's got his finger on the nuclear button. Can you imagine how scary that is? No, you know what's scary? Joe Biden, anywhere near the nuclear button. Joe Biden, who came into office with a stable situation in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops there, not a single casualty, not even anybody wounded in 18 months. What's What happened six months later? 13 service members dead, a colossal disastrous exit from Afghanistan, billions of dollars of weapons thrown into the hands of terrorists, Thousands of Americans left behind Taliban lines and people clinging to the outside of airplanes as the airplanes took off only to land in friendly countries where we found out that there were people on those airplanes who weren't supposed to be there. They were on the terrorist watch list. I mean, that was a disaster. And then Joe Biden inviting a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, saying, well, if it's a small invasion, uh, we might have to take some actions. He invited Putin to do it. And then he, well, then he went out and blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I hope people don't forget about that. And now, all of a sudden, we've got a war going on between Hamas and Israel. And how did that get started? Oh, Joe Biden gave the mad mullahs of Tehran $6 billion, and they gave some of it to Hamas. And Hamas went out and slaughtered and raped and beheaded and burned people to death. Yeah, that kind of thing. And do we have the potential of a war uh, between China and the United States over Taiwan because of Joe Biden? Yes. And would many of those things have happened if Donald Trump had been in office, if the Democrats hadn't cheated in the 2020 election? So with all that as background, the Democrats are facing this and the media and the Republican rhinos on the Republican side of the aisle. They can't stand the idea that Donald Trump is virtually inevitable. And yet, as of this week, most of the media, most of the political movers and shakers have admitted that Donald Trump is all but inevitable. He's going to get the nomination. And at this point, the polls, the average of all the polls by real clear polling uh, shows about a two or three point lead for Donald Trump, despite all the bashing, despite all the indictments and everything else. So what are they left with as an option for a strategy? Well, they say we've got to convince people that he's a crazy minded dictator. Let me let me give you a sampling of that. And then I'll play that soundbite from Trump again. Uh, we've got the Associated Press. Trump won't rule out abusing power for retribution. And then you've got the Atlantic. If Trump wins, the staff of the Atlantic on the threat a second term poses to American democracy. And, of course, the New York Times has got to weigh in why a second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first. And the Washington Post, a Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. 
And then you get this statement in which Donald Trump, talking to one of my fellow talk show hosts, a friend, uh, Sean Hannity, says the following. Take a listen. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a that's, drill. That's not, oh, no. that's not retribution. No, it's not retribution at all. That's not getting even. That's saying, do we need to close America's southern border? I think, I think even Democrats agree we can't take the continued invasion of America that Joe Biden has created. Even the Democrats who run places like Chicago and New York and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., have said, we're being invaded. We've got too many illegals because they thought they'd all stay in the southern states, the, the red states of America. So what they've got to do is try to convince you Donald Trump will be a dictator. Donald Trump will do things that put in democracy in danger. You mean the kind of democracy that Joe Biden and his friends practice? The kind where Barack Hussein Obama gets rich, Hillary and Bill Clinton get rich, the Biden crime family gets rich, they peddle influence, they sell on America's future, and they're afraid of the guy who made America great again? In fact, Joe Biden uses it as some kind of slur. Why, these are MAGA types. You mean the people who believe in making America great again? They've got to convince you that somehow Donald Trump is the boogeyman. Well, it is for them. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Whether you like it or not, with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. You know, when most of us hear the phrase executive order, especially in terms of the president of the United States, I guess I'd have to confess that I've always imagined, say, a single sheet of paper saying, you know, make it this way and, and a signature down below it. But in, in this case, we want to talk about an executive order that is 13 separate sections extending out over 100 pages. And the man, the perfect man to talk about it is Will Reinhardt, senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Hey, Will, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is this is a, this is a big one. This is a very it, it's, long. Are, are they usually this long? A hundred pages um, long with a hundred what they call deliverables, which I, I would call promises from every major yeah. agency of the federal government. This is one of the largest executive orders I've ever seen, and you know I'm I, I have the fun job of actually reading through a lot of these uh, day in and day out. So yeah, no, this is probably the largest I've ever seen. It is a, a dramatic change in policy for the administration and for the for the Biden administration, and there, there's a lot to thing here. So it, it, it's going to take a, quite some time to kind of to have everything settle out. But, uh, you know, my expectation is that this executive order is going to be pretty – we're going to look back and say that it was a very impactful and meaningful executive order. 
Yeah, and maybe not necessarily in a good way. So for any big executive order, it deserves a big title. The executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. Can you give us some of the high points of this? Since I don't think we have nearly enough time to cover all 100 pages or all the 100 deliverables in this thing. Yeah, so so there's there is a lot. I mean, it, to be honest, there is you know as you as you noted, it, it hits almost every single major agency. Um, it really directs a lot of agencies to kind of get their house orders. So one of the things that I think it's going to end up doing is that it's really going to say to government agencies. Yes, these tools, these AI tools like ChatGPT and the new Google, um, the new Google Bard, those are, are useful and you can actually use these and you should use these in your workflow and, and figure out how to implement these things to have better service and better delivery. Currently, most of the government agencies basically have said, no, we're not going to deal with this. We're not going to integrate these services in our, you know, into our workflows. And, and I think that at least in that part, it's, it's going to be good because it's going to give, uh, it's going to give a lot of emphasis on these sorts of tools to make things better. But the other part of this, which is, I think, the, the sneaky part of this, is that the agency also potentially regulates some very, very important, um, regulatory, it adds some, like, some regulatory crust on all of this. And what it's really effectively going to do is it's going to say, Hey, for these really big models, for these, you know, for ChatGPT and and for Google's Bard, that you're going to have to get regulatory approval or effectively a regulatory approval from the uh, from the White House. It's not, you know, it's not specifically that everything has to be has to go through their their approval, but you basically you're going to have to, you know, tell them that what you're doing, right? You're going to have to you're going to have to say, hey, we're we're developing out this system. It looks like X, Y, and Z, and you know, you have to give us information to the uh to the to the white house so it's setting things up for the future which i think is why it's so important it's like this is the first step if you want to regulate ai this is the first step to do it well and let me ask you just so people understand is does the executive order say this is the way this stuff gets used in the government or does this have the potential or or does it actually regulate it for everybody who might use it so it's doing a little bit of both. It is, in fact, saying that this is how you probably should uh, use it within the government. So, and I think part of that's going to be good because we do need these services to create better government delivery, right? We have uh, an expensive government bureaucracy, and I think this is one of the ways to, you know, get better outcomes with fewer, you know, fewer resources. But then there's this other part, which is also saying to the agencies, to the you know, to the to the Federal Trade Commission and all of these other powerful agencies, hey, you should take a look at this and you should do as much as you're as much as you're capable of doing uh, to regulate AI. So, it, you know, in a hundred, you know, in a hundred page or sorry, in a hundred deliverables, there's a lot of different things that, that this is well, effectively going to do. And and it, a lot of it could be very, very detrimental in the long term. I, I guess, Will, in my heart of hearts, I could hope that a really smart AI might say, hey, that Department of Education, you should eliminate the whole thing. And the Commerce Department, most of that. And, you know, I, I wish an AI could go to work, but I have a feeling that government is going to handle this new technology the way we're always hearing about government handling things where they say, yeah, we've had hacks of our uh, our computer databases. We've lost the entire list of, the you know, all the people who work for the federal government and all their personal info. They're never up to date when it comes to technology. So 
How are they going to approach something that really is at the cutting edge of technology? Are they going to embrace it? Or are they going to say, yeah, we really don't want to mess with this, and we'll be, we'll be stuck with the same old, you know, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, some kind of bound-up government that can't seem to get anything straight? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be – I don't think there's a singular kind of takeaway that we'll be able to see that really expresses what – each of the eight different agencies is going to react slightly differently depending on the things that they've been given. So I wish I could give a clear answer to that, but the, I think the, the reality is that there's going to be changes, say, at the, the Veterans Administration, and there's going to be changes at the Department of Commerce, and there's going to be changes – at the Department of Education, and each one of those we're going to have to follow very closely. And I think that for people who care about those issues, you know, it's, it's going to matter very specifically how those agencies react. And it's kind of uncertain right now exactly, uh, ex- exactly what the outcomes look like. I mean, for something this comprehensive, and talking to Will Reinhardt from the Center for Growth and Opportunity, is it something that should be handled uh, by putting it on a piece of paper and saying when Joe Biden says it, it's effectively law? Or should this be done by the Congress? If we're going to regulate I, I, AI, yeah, yeah. If we're going to regulate it, I think Congress really should be the, the should be the driver of this. But Congress is stalled for a lot of different reasons, and I don't think that AI specifically is really going to, you know, I, I don't think AI is one of those issues where you can see it uh, kind of pass through the blockage. But at the same time, the White House probably shouldn't be doing very much more than what they're already doing, and they're already doing a lot. So before this executive order came out. Lots of different agencies were trying to figure out how to, you know, how to how to police um, bad, nefarious actors um, anyway. So there was already a lot that was going on by the agencies, by the FTC to go after, you know, people who were using AI for fraud and for 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 banks and all of that kind of stuff. That's where I think the government actually should be useful. Right. It's the attorneys general going after the hacker groups that are trying to get people's information and taking, you know, taking their financial data and taking their information away and doing all those sorts of bad, nefarious things. But this goes so much further. And, and I worry that if the agencies really try to take the, uh, if they take the executive order to heart, then they're going to focus on all of these things that at the end of the day really don't matter. And what really matters is that consumers are protected, right? That we go after the bad actors that are, that are that are doing bad things and that we ensure that people can have access to these technologies but it occurs to me will if you've got bad actors who are going to use ai even use it in perverse ways to try to hack into us and then you tie the hands of the federal government and say but you can't use the the most cutting edge ai against them i know who's likely to win that contest am i wrong no you're completely right and that's where where at least positively the the executive order suggests that maybe the agencies are going to be using these tools in the future. Yeah, but 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 the fe- the federal government is going to be told this is how you're going to use them. This is you know we're going to put limits on it, and maybe you should even put. And the last thing I want to see is say limits on the private sector, and they're going to say you should compete with China and every other part of the world, but they're going to be using AI to beat the band, and we're going to tie your hands before you walk into that contest. That one doesn't seem like it's a winner for America. That's Will Reinhardt from the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Will, it's a pleasure to have you on. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram.
Lars Larson Show. Karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. All men and the people who love. Join the best conversation and talk journalism at 866-HEY-LARS. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls, and we'll do that in just a moment. But I want to talk to our friend Michael Bernstam. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford with an expertise in international economics, the former Soviet Union, and Russian politics. Professor, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with your audience. I, I love to have you on the show to, to bring us up to date on, on where we stand now in terms of the Ukraine war. And the news today that broke that federal prosecutors have now charged four Russian soldiers with war crimes for allegedly abducting and torturing an American citizen in Ukraine shortly after the Russian invasion. Is there a way of, of, of capsulizing where do we stand now? And especially with what now sounds like Congress's extreme reluctance to send more tens of billions of dollars into the war. Uh, it is a package, uh, the $61 billion uh, from the United States, uh, which the Congress wants to uh, conduct together with securing the border, and uh, it's an important issue, too. So it is a bargaining. It's not about the substance of the issue. Uh, very few object to the, uh, uh, to the uh, military and financial aid to Ukraine. But uh, the Congress wants to use this opportunity to solve the problems across the border, including the border security. So it's a political issue of how to handle it, not the substance of the issue. And well, another thing is sorry. that... Yeah, okay, go No, ahead. no, go ahead, Professor. The other issue? Oh, yeah. But, uh, meanwhile, uh, meanwhile uh, the president of Ukraine couldn't uh, appear uh, for whatever reason uh, to argue this case, but he held a very important uh, online conversation, telephone or uh, Zoom, I don't know, uh, with all the leaders of the G7, and they agreed on uh, joint strategy. So uh, it's a political process. Would you, but, but on top of the political process, you said there's very little disagreement with sending more money to Ukraine. I guess I'd push back on that notion a bit, Professor, because I hear more and more people saying, look, how much are we going to send? Where, what, where we get, when do we finally get to a resolution of this issue? And we don't get much that's concrete that comes from either the White House or the Congress. It's just we need to send more money. And then when they couple it up and say, we're going to couple that with a vote that's on Ukraine, that's on the border, and that's on Israel, Every right. time they combine different issues together that way, it makes me suspect that they think that on their own, those issues would not win a vote. Uh, no, I, I think on the contrary. On the contrary, these issues uh, are combined in order for 
meet the priorities that for every member of Congress, they have their own constituency. For every senator, they have their states. There are priorities. And for some, for all our thousand states, Arizona, Texas, and others, uh, California, where I am, the, prior, the priority is border security. And more generally, for all Western countries, the issue of immigration, because it is very hard, to be honest, very hard to maintain the welfare state and very hard to maintain the labor market when the issue of immigration are not resolved. So this is the attempt to solve all the issues together. Now, do you, uh, militarily, do you see much in the way of any kind of progress from one side or the other? Because it seems as though on neither side seems to be winning uh, this, this conflict. It's just grinding on. Is my impression wrong? Uh, I'm not a military expert, but I think your impression is right. You mentioned Israel, you mentioned Ukraine. Look, there are only three scenarios possible in each of them. One is that no one surrenders, neither side surrenders, neither Hamas nor Israel surrender, neither Russia nor Ukraine surrender, and it will, it may go for a long time, lots of people will get killed. The other possibility is one side, one side surrenders. If one side surrenders, then, uh, then it is over. Neither side wants to surrender. That's, that's the problem. But can you ask either side or can you enforce on either side or how do you make one side surrender? If neither side surrenders, the war will last for, for as long as one side can prevail militarily. Uh, Israel may be able to prevail militarily in the Middle East, but neither Russia nor Ukraine seem to be able to prevail militarily in their uh, war. Well, because at least with Hamas and Israel, is there any doubt that Israel has the military capability to go in and kill every member of Hamas if they choose to do it? No, that's, that, that, that's the issue, that uh, if one side wins and the other side loses, that's the end of the war. That's how wars end. One right. side wins, the other side loses. And Israel can do it. In, in the Russian-Ukrainian war, paradoxically, neither side can do it. Although it looks like Russia is much stronger, it used to be said that they have the second largest or the second <laughs> most powerful army in the world, and now it is degraded their fighting for what? For villages, which no one lives there anymore. The villages where they have uh, uh, a few houses there and all, all destroyed, and they're fighting there. Yeah, and, and they're not making much progress on either side. I was just making the Me point that Israel could go in, and right now, uh, the Daily Mail has a story that says they're planning to flood the 300 miles of tunnels that uh, Hamas has been using as its base of operations under Gaza. And if they flood it with seawater, apparently it fills up and Hamas would be forever denied its use of those facilities that they've used for a long time to wage a war on Israel. It, it, and it would force all the rats to the top when you flood the sewer. By the way, uh, you mentioned uh, 300 miles of uh, tunnels there. Uh, for, uh, for a comparison, the New York subway has a bit, just a little bit more than 300 miles. So it's <laughs> exactly. huge. Can you think of this construction? The Paris subway has 360 miles, and it was built for 100 years. New yep. York subway was built for decades. How, how could Hamas, a small organization ostensibly, with a few uh, billion dollars from Iran, could build 300 miles of tunnels? But they managed it. Well, and they managed it, I think, 
with an awful lot of aid from Israel and the United States, where the Gazans would say, oh, you have to help us out. We need sewers. We need water. We need facilities. We need to build, you know, apartment buildings uh, to house all our people. So the Western countries give the money or give the materials, and they end up being used to build terrorist facilities. The Western countries give the money through the organization, the unique organization, UNRWA, United Nations UNRWA. Agency yep. for the Relief, UNRWA, uh, which is only for the Palestinian refugees. No other refugees in the world. We have millions of refugees in Africa. Lots of people get slaughtered. And we have this agency which sends billions of dollars of Western money for the welfare state for, to the country where... Uh, 50% just don't work or work for Hamas and build these tunnels. And meanwhile, the leaders of Hamas are sitting where? Qatar or Qatar? Uh, and they're worth billions of dollars? Yes, Qatar and in Syria and uh, in Lebanon. And uh, their children go to Western universities, of course. So they get to run a remote control war from the comfort and luxury of Qatar and they're worth billions of dollars, and they're directing a war that ends up being funded by the United States. Uh, by the United States and Western, Western Europe and the same G7, which, uh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's the world we're living in, yes. We're subsidizing, we're subsidizing for almost 80 years, we're subsidizing uh, this uh, organization. As far as I'm concerned, then, Professor, turn on the pumps, flood the tunnels, fix the problem, force the rats to the surface, and do what we do with rats, which is exterminate them. And if they say, well, the Palestinian people, well, the Palestinian people, maybe we should look at it this way, free them from Hamas. And if they still have the attitude that says, no, we want to kill our next-door neighbors, then treat them just like Hamas, as far as I'm concerned. That's Professor Michael Bernstam, research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Professor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been talking about illegal alien issues for more than a quarter of a century. I don't say that as a great thing. I wish I could have stopped talking about it uh, 20 plus years ago. Sadly, we currently have a president who's decided to sponsor an invasion of America while they're asking him about how millions of people have managed to get across the border illegally given thousands of dollars, signed up for all kinds of public benefits, uh, given a, a bus ticket or a plane ticket at the expense of the American taxpayer. Well, come to find out, Alejandro Mayorkas is a true believer. He, he actually thinks it's wrong 
for America to enforce its border. And in support of that point, I'm going to play a soundbite in a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. And I might get some naysayers on this. So naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. If you want to remember it that way, 866-HEY-LARS or 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll. Uh, We put up a brand-new question of the day every day on x or twitter at lars larson show and at lars but this was absolutely stunning here's alejandro mayorkas testifying in front of the united states congress and he explains that it's just wrong to actually enforce the border take a listen you know, restart construction on the border wall, increase the number of border patrol agents, limit asylum, narrow the president's parole powers. Why is that unpalatable to the administration? I would say two things. One, we've presented um, uh, proposals uh, that address the situation, that provide real practical solutions, and also uh, do not do violence to our fundamental values. Do violence to our fundamental values. Now, let me tell you what you should see or hear in that soundbite. Number one, he says, well, we've presented solutions that address the situation. Do you know what he's talking about? He's saying, if only America would say, when you come to our border, we'll let you in and we'll simply grant you status to stay in America. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is there are about a million people every single year these days who want to come to America and they get to come to America. They do it through a green card system. And those are given out. A certain number are given. Uh, the, uh, the ability to get a green card is given out to various people in various countries, right? And, uh, uh, and, and to some extent, we grant, grant a greater number to Mexico and a lesser number to all, almost all the other countries on Earth. You can emigrate from almost everywhere on this planet to the United States. And I would guess that if allowed, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people would like to come to America. So what Mayorkas is saying is, we need to just speed this up. We almost need an escalator right there at the border that just carries you into the country and immediately gives you status to stay in America, to work in America, to enjoy the rights and privileges and protections of the Constitution. We want to just give it away to anybody who shows up except that all the way up to the point of Joe Biden beginning his presidency not quite three years ago, America had carefully or tried to carefully regulate immigration to this country. But Mayorkas believes that if you enforce that, that is doing violence to our fundamental values. Only if your values include saying, well, I guess what? If anybody wants to come here, they can come here, and nobody in America can decide that they don't want an unlimited flow of illegal aliens into the country with all the damage that can do. Let me go first on, uh, because I always put naysayers first, I want to put Eric up. Hey, Eric, welcome to the program. You know we love naysayers on this program. Welcome, and uh, tell me what we disagree with that makes you uh, about, that makes you a a naysayer. Hey, Lars. Yeah, um, so uh, thanks for having me on here. Um, Sure. So yesterday you had a phone call from a gentleman named Rob, I believe, uh, and it was regarding um, using correct terminology for trans. And when you responded, your, your response was saying that you felt that if you used the correct terminology, 
you would lose half your audience that they wouldn't be able to I didn't, I didn't say that. Talking. What I said was, I, he said you should just call these fake women instead of trans. And I said, I tend to use terms of art that are familiar to my audience because, and I didn't say anything about losing audience. We haven't seemed to do anything but yeah, gain audience for the last would, uh, 10 years. I, I, recall you, I recall you said you would uh, lose half of your audience because the topic was, he was actually saying you should use gender dys dysphoria as opposed to calling them fake women. Well, by if, if I lose, if I lose, hold on, Eric, Eric, if by lose, if I began to talk about nuclear fusion, and I know that most of my audience doesn't know the terminology, and it won't make any sense to them, I might lose them in the sense that they say, I don't know what he's talking about. What I try to do with every subject is make it understandable to the vast majority of my, my audience. Not Maybe not all, but I'm not sure what your point is. What do we disagree about? Okay, so... Well, on that, you haven't so said you that yet. You called in as an naysayer, so I insist that you tell us what right we here. disagree about. This is my point right here. This is my point right here. Okay. If you think the vast majority of your audience cannot follow you along when you're using the right terms, then you think that you are superior in education and smarter than most of your audience. Never said that. I've never said that. If you're going to lose them. If well, but hold on, Eric, Eric, I, you know, Eric, my producers and I use a lot of terminal. Oh, and Eric did took the coward's way out and simply left um, my in my business in radio. There are a lot of specialized terms that mean something to people who work in that industry. If you work as a mechanic or if you work in construction, there are terms that you use for things that the rest of us may or may not understand. And all I'm suggesting is not a superiority, but if I use unfamiliar terms to describe something, in most cases, people are going to say, I have no idea what he's talking about. On that note, let's go to Lisa. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm calling about the um, transgender issue and um, biological males participating in girls' sports. Yep. Um, you know, they say that, well, you should let everybody participate and that, you know, they are, quote, females. Um, mm. But one of the things that, well, I mean, that they say that because psychologically they're just saying, crazy I don't want to be a male say or that, female. Lisa. Crazy people say yeah. that. Yeah. I know. But the thing is, I, I was thinking, you know, why, if they say, well, they're, they're going through all this transition, the, the hormones, the sex changes. I mean, but that that is not acknowledging that at birth, that boy was um, genetically programmed to have longer bones, more muscle mass, yep. all that kind of stuff. And his body yep. does things differently. So if they're saying it's, he's now a woman, then, I mean, really, the logic would be, well, you need to change all the way back to a woman. So have your bones changed? Your muscles change, you know, like take muscles out because they're, or, or something, you know, however many percent of your body. And the other problem is, Lisa, an awful lot of people who call themselves trans and call themselves women have not gone through the hormone changes. They just identify as women and then they get to compete against real women and Larson competition. Show. And that's just wrong. You got the Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by 